Kabbalah and the Psychology of the Soul, taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. God created the world, and he created a whole system of cause and effect. And that's the way our minds are wired. Our minds are wired to think of cause and effect. What we see, we look at the rule for everything. Everything has to have a reason, a law. What's the law? Law of physics, law of psychology. Everything has to have a law, a reason. And what's the reason behind the reason? And what's, what causes this? Everything we think in terms of cause and effect. And that's our whole frame of reference. We can't even think outside the box. We can only think cause and effect, and the original cause, and the original cause, and the original cause. The whole idea of something from nothing, where there is no cause and effect. It's not like cause, cause and effect is logical. It's like the mother gives birth to the baby. The baby was first in the mother's womb, and then it emerges. The brain, the mind, an idea gives birth to an emotion. You understand something well, it leads to an emotion. Now they understand it, now I want it, I love it, I'm attracted to it, or I hate it, I'm afraid of it, I want to run away from it which leads to thought. You think about something that you love, which leads to, to speech. You speak about things, something you're thinking about, which leads to action. So this is all a logical sequence. It's called Seder Ishtalshalis. It's called cause and effect. One thing leads, leads to the other. So that's our frame of reference. We think in terms of cause and effect. We can't think outside the box. But the truth is that everything in this world is something from nothing. It's not cause and effect. There's no logical connection. How do you get from energy to matter? How do you jump from energy, from an atom to a table? It's not logical. It makes no sense. How do you get from pure energy? This table is 99.9% empty. Because if you go into the atom, the atom, everything is made up of atoms. The atom is 99.9% empty. Yet, this doesn't look empty. It looks pretty solid. Because it swirls around and, and it gives us the appearance of solidity. So how do you get from pure energy? No one has ever seen an atom. Not because we don't have a strong enough microscope to see one. It's, be, it's extra centuries, pure energy. How do you get from pure energy to solid, to matter? It makes no sense. It's not logical. It's not like predictable. It's a logical thing. The mother has a, has a child in, this, in her womb and logically she'll give birth to a child. The brain will give birth to an emotion. The emotions will give birth to a thought. The thought will give birth to speech. The speech will give birth to action. That's logical. That's called ilava alu, like a chain, a chain reaction. One cause leads to the effect, which becomes the cause to the next effect. And it could be, it could be a very long chain of events. You can have a thousand rungs in the chain. But one thing leads to the other. And all of our thinking, that's our frame of reference. From religion to the scientists, everyone is stuck within this frame of reference, cause and effect. That's not Judaism. Judaism, the very foundation of Judaism is Bereshis bara lekim. In the beginning, God created something from nothing. It takes us out of the box. It's something from nothing. It's illogical. It's unpredictable. There's no connection. It's it's a divine miracle. It's only an expression of God's creative ability. It makes no sense. How do you get from here to there? It's like totally unpredictable, totally unprepared. It makes no sense. It's illogical. But God had to create the world in such a way that with this frame of reference of cause and effect, because otherwise, if we were to sense that everything is something from nothing, there would be no egos, there would be no world. We would all be one with God. 
So in order to create a world, an entity, a reality, time, space, concepts, ideas, God had to create this frame of reference. So our whole universe exists within this frame of reference of cause and effect, rules, laws. Whether it's mystical law or logical law or psychological law or physical law, cause and effect. But that whole frame of reference is wrong. It's a cover-up. A very effective cover-up. Because it totally conceals and hides the truth. The truth is that we are nothing. And existence makes no sense. And it's a miracle. And it's a dynamic miracle. And an ongoing miracle. And God has to constantly create us. If you think the splitting of the sea was a miracle, the splitting of the sea is nothing in comparison to this cup of water, the miracle of this cup of water. This cup of water exists. is a greater miracle, more profound miracle, than the greatest miracle in the Torah, the splitting of the sea. How do you get from energy to a cup of water? It makes no sense. How do you make such a leap? It's totally logical, totally rational. 99% empty, and yet everything is so solid and real, and we don't sense anything. But this is the cover-up. We're wearing blinders. We don't see, we don't hear, we don't sense. And we are living in this frame of reference. But God created it so intentionally to cover up, to enable existence. Otherwise existence could not exist. There would be no, no sense of ego, no sense of independence, no, no sense of separation from God. We would be totally nullified within God. We would sense that we're nothing. All we would notice and pay attention to is the divine energy, the creative miracle. We would be dancing with every fiber of our being, we would only be singing the praise of Hashem and, and experiencing the divine miracle of creation, of existence. So it's a complete cover-up. Yes, we notice that we're alive. Life is a miracle, but we don't notice the divine, that it's divine. We don't make the divine connection. The effect of the symptom is that we perceive God's speech as if it were human speech. When a human being speaks, yes, where were these words and letters that you're thinking with and you're speaking with? Where were these words and letters before you spoke? These words and letters were within the person, unified within the person. They were non-entity. They were in a state of non-being and non-existence. But then the person speaks. And then the words have a life of their own. You're communicating to someone that exists outside of you. And they hear, hear you, and they absorb it, and they receive it. So the effect of the symptom is that when God speaks, we perceive His speech just like human speech. The difference is when God speaks, He creates someone to speak to. It's His words that create the audience. When we speak, the audience already exists before we speak. There's a whole world out there. And we speak, and they receive our words. God is no one to speak to. There's no one outside of God. But when God speaks, He creates an audience. He creates us, a being that feels itself, feels its ego, being egotistical and separate, independent, apart, apart from God. So God's speech creates us and creates an audience. So there's a separation between God and us. So yes, we may know that there's a speaker. God is speaking, there's a speaker. But there are words and there are letters. And the, mean, the words have meaning. He's speaking to us. He's communicating to us. So there's somebody to communicate to somebody worth communicating to. So we're an entity. Suddenly we feel like we're, we're, we're something in relationship to God. There's God and there's us. There's a relationship. There's a connection. So that's the difference. We perceive God's speech just like human speech. But how does God himself perceive his speech? 
like we said earlier. God speaks. After he speaks, it's like before he speaks. Just like before he speaks, we were those words and letters unified within God, swallowed up within God. It was nothing else but God. Even after God speaks, the speech hasn't left God. It's still within God. It's still swallowed up in the source. Nothing exists but God. So for God, there is no symptom. Nothing could hide and conceal God. As he's going to explain, because the symptom also comes from God. Not only is God doing the speaking, God is also doing the hiding. So when you're hiding yourself, you can't really hide yourself. As this is expressed in Jewish law. The person is not where it doesn't lost his yarmulke. And he wants to make a blessing. You have to make a blessing. You need a yarmulke. Kippah. So what does he do? Could you take your hand and put it over your head? Does that count as a kippah, as a covering? No. Why not? Because you can't cover yourself. You can't use your own hand to cover your own head. You can't cover up on yourself. It's like uh, the turtle. The turtle's cover is part of the turtle. It's not separate from it. So someone else can put his hands over you. Someone else puts his hands over you, that's a good cover. You can put your hands over someone else's head, but you can't cover up in yourself. So when God is covering up in himself, there's no cover. Who's God, who, he's concealing over himself. You can't conceal yourself. So therefore, from God's point of view, there is no cover. So just like before the symptom, God is alone. The words are completely swallowed up and unified within the unity of God. Even after the symptom, even after the contraction, nothing changes. From God's point of view, from God's perspective, nothing changes. From our perspective, everything changes. We exist. We sense ourselves. We're here. But from God's point of view, even after He creates us and He conceals and He hides and He creates the veil, God is the veil. He is the creator and He's the veil. So all there is is God. So nothing changed. So the truth is that nothing changed. God speaks. After He speaks, it's like before He speaks. The words never leave Him. They're within the source and they're in a state of non-entity and non-being. So from God's point of view, even after He creates us, while He's creating us at this very moment, we are in a state of non-being. All that is is God. There is nothing else. It's not even like a body to the soul. All there is is God. All there is is there, there is no body. There is nothing. There is no entity. There is nothing. Even after the sins. Even after he conceals himself. Creates it. When God hides, God puts a veil on, so to speak, it's all part of God. To use another analogy, another human analogy, Einstein is trying to teach his students. Now, there's such a huge gap between Einstein and the students. He's a genius, a world genius. How is he going to communicate with his simple students? I mean, there's no way their mind could even come close to his mind. So what does he do? Einstein has to lower himself to their level. Einstein has to put himself, put himself in their shoes, get into their heads, and try to communicate using concepts that they can understand. So he has to bring analogies, he brings examples, illustrations, similes, brings them analogies of foxes and hens and parables that they can relate to, stories that they can understand from their world, their simple world. And he's trying to communicate his, his, his revolutionary insights in language that they can understand. Now, the students, what do they hear? They hear a nice story, a nice parable, a nice illustration, and they can relate to it. They don't see the depth of what Einstein is trying to communicate. Their, their, their minds are too small to really understand and appreciate what Einstein is truly saying. They understand on their level. What does Einstein see in the same parable? 
While he's giving the parable, he sees a parable, he sees a fox and a hen, he sees an illustration. What does he see? He sees his concept in its brilliance, in its dazzling brilliance, in its depth, undiminished. He sees, in the analogy, what does he see? He sees nothing changed. For Einstein, nothing changed. For them, for the students, everything changed. They couldn't possibly receive his dazzling, brilliant insights. It's just too dazzling for them. So they see a simple analogy they can relate to. But even while Einstein is giving these analogies, what does Einstein see in these analogies? He sees the original concept. He doesn't see the parable of the little story or the silly little story he's telling. He sees in that story, he sees that dazzling, brilliant insight. Why? Why Why is Einstein able to see in this little parable the whole concept? Because where did this parable come from? Who came up with this parable? Einstein came up with this parable. It came from within him. Who has this brilliant concept? Einstein. So the parable can't block, can't possibly scream or act as a veil to scream to diminish this dazzling, brilliant insight because it all comes from the same source. The insight comes from, this, from Einstein and the, the parable, the veil, the cover-up also comes from Einstein. You can't cover up on yourself. So the veil doesn't, can't cover up, doesn't diminish by one iota the brilliance of, of, of the original concept. This is what the Zohar calls the higher level of unity. The ultimate level of unity. Which is how many commentaries explain. The question is, the very first mitzvah in the Torah is the mitzvah to believe in God. Maimonides says the mitzvah, the very first of the Ten Commandments, the very first mitzvah in the Torah is to believe in God question is, how could there be a commandment to believe in God? Firstly, if you don't believe in God, who's commanding you? Believe in God already assumes you believe in God. Otherwise, who's commanding? Secondly, how could you command someone to believe in God? Command someone to love. I do, I don't. I believe. I believe, I don't believe. You command someone to do something. You can't command someone to believe. Either you do or you don't. And if you don't believe, commanding him is not going to make them believe. And thirdly, you need a commandment to believe in God. It's so obvious, it's so natural, it's so self-evident. I mean, just open your eyes, unless a person is blind, deaf, and dumb. How can you not believe in God? And if someone told you that uh, Shakespeare was written by a monkey who sat at a typewriter, it's ridiculous, absurd. If someone told you the Empire State Building, one Sunday morning there was a big bang of a whole bunch of material, and there was a big explosion, and everyone closed their eyes, and before you knew it, there was this Empire State Building, perfect, with elevators, and and everything was down. It's so absurd and, and that's nothing in comparison to the complexity of the human body, which is made up of billions of atoms. And we, we, we're just beginning to, we haven't even begun to fathom the depth, the infinite depth, of even one organ in the body. We're just scratching the surface. So anyone that could believe that all of this just happened, a big bang, and all of a sudden, just I mean, it's, it's almost insulting. The person doesn't know what a fool he's making of himself. How could you utter such nonsense with a straight face? So you don't even need faith to believe in God. It's common sense. It's logical. You see a building, you know there's a builder, period. You, know, you see a book, you know there's an author. You see a business, you know there's someone to build. You see a country, a system of government, you know there's a founder, there's a George Washington. It just didn't just happen by itself. So anyone that could believe in this world, this infinitely complex world, that only today we're, we're beginning to understand the infinite complexities. All of this has happened on its own. I mean, as Einstein says, how could you not believe? 
So you don't need a mitzvah to believe in God, a commandment to believe in God. How can you not believe in God? Anyone who has innate intelligence, anyone who's genuinely intelligent, not pseudo-intellectual, but anyone who's genuinely intelligent, how can you not believe in God? I mean, it's, it's absurd not to. So it doesn't, take, it doesn't take faith to believe in God. It's common sense, it's logical, it's rational. It's... So firstly, do you need a mitzvah to believe in God? You don't need a mitzvah, it's common sense. If you did, if you did need a commandment, how could a commandment help you? Either you believe or you don't believe. And thirdly, who is commanding you in the first place? I mean, a mitzvah presumes that you believe in a God who is commanding you, has a right to command you. And the explanation is, the mitzvah is not to believe it is a God. That goes without saying. You don't need a mitzvah to believe in God. It's common sense. Anyone who has common sense, you open your eyes, of course you believe in God. Just like you know you have a soul, you've never seen your soul. You're more certain of your soul than anything in the world you can see. So, of course, this world also has a soul. You don't need, it's common sense. You don't need a commandment to believe in God. And we already believe in God. It's natural. It's innate. The mitzvah of the Ten Commandments, the very first mitzvah in the Torah is to believe the higher level of unity, the level we're discussing here in the Tanya, that the relationship between God and the world is not like the body and the soul. The body and the soul, yes, the soul, the body is completely nullified before the soul. The body is egoless. The body becomes one with the soul, inseparable from the soul. The identity of the body becomes nothing other than the soul. The moment you decide to move your hand, your hand moves automatically. The body is just a part of the soul, merges, becomes one with the soul. But nevertheless, no one will say that the body is nothing in comparison to the soul. The body is also something. The soul is something and the body is something. And the proof is, you see the effect that the body has on the soul. Not only the soul has on the body, but the body has on the soul. If you're cold or you're hot or your body is hurting, in pain, the soul can't function properly. And if you're too much in pain, the soul leaves the body. So you see from the impact that the, in, the body-mind connection, the mind-body connection, the soul, the body are interlinked, interchanged, interconnected, that one affects the other, one impacts the other. So you can't say that the body is nothing in comparison to this. The higher level of unity is, that, and this is the mitzvah to believe, this God that you already believe in, every, every religious person believes in God, every mystic believes in God, you don't have to be Jewish, you don't have to be, it's universal. Anyone with common sense opens his eyes, of course you see God and you sense God. It doesn't even, it's not even a question of faith, you don't even need faith for that. You want to know what blind faith is? It's not belief in God. It's God's belief in us. So that's, that's, that's blind faith. But the mitzvah of faith in the Torah is that this God that you believe in, that you know exists, you should believe, and this is the foundation of the Jewish people, this is the very first mitzvah in the Torah, the beginning of the Ten Commandments, this is what Jewish faith is, the faith that we inherit from our parents, from our mothers, we get the Jewish neshama. What makes us Jewish is we have a Jewish neshama. We have this innate, inherent, innate faith within God that is that we believe that God is not, the world is not even like a body to the soul. Because the soul, there is a body. But to God, there is nothing other than God. Nothing else really exists. All there is is really God. Even while God is creating the world and speaking and bringing us into existence, creating us and sustaining us with His words and letters, the Hebrew words and letters, nothing really exists but God. Because after God speaks, it's exactly the same like before He speaks. Just like a human being. 
before he speaks. Where are those words and letters that you think with and you speak with? They came from you. Where were they? Inside of you. You didn't even feel you had them. You don't, even the words didn't feel themselves because they were one with the source. They were swallowed up in the source. They were unified within the source. It was nothing other than the source. The raw experience, the raw intellect, subconscious, the essence of the person. So too with God, even after He speaks, it's exactly like before He speaks. And therefore the very words and letters that creates us and bring, constantly bring us into existence, those very words and letters are in a state, they themselves are in a state of non-being and non-existence. So the very true nature of everything that exists, really, is no ego, non-being, non-existence. All there is is God, being totally unified within the absolute unity of God. That everything is permeated with the essence of God. There is nothing else but God. This is really the foundation of Hasidus, it's the foundation of the whole Hasidic philosophy. And this really gives a Jew the strength. Where does a Jew get the strength? Not only to maintain his dignity and maintain his strength, his inner strength, that the whole world ridiculed and laughed, and, and yet we stuck to our guns and we maintained our principles, our morals, our ethics, our convictions ready to give up or sacrifice our lives for our principles, for our belief, for our faith. But this is the foundation because when you realize that the world, from God's point of view, from the ultimate point of view, it's like, it's like a non-being. Our true state is a state of non-being, non-existence, non-entity. So then there's nothing but God. So what do you mean 99% of the world? We only play for an audience of one. <laughs> There's only one. Hashem There's only one reality. So nothing else really exists. So Plato is laughing. So? So? Hashem There's only one existence. There's only one reality. Nothing else exists. And therefore, when it comes to any matter of Torah, even one iota of Torah, there's no force in the universe. All the forces in the universe together can't get the Jew to budge one iota to go against this Torah. To compromise even one iota. Not nothing exists with God. There's only one reality, period. There is nothing else. Ultimately, there is nothing else. And that's, that's the marriage of the Jew and God. That's what we have from the inside out. And no one can take that away from us. That's what gives us strength. That's this, our wellspring. That's our secret. That's our fountain, our fountain of youth. That keeps us youthful and vibrant and vigorous and fresh. All the mighty empires are long gone and forgotten. And yet the Jew never left the front page of history. The eternal people. Because this is the truth. This is our fountain of youth. This is the truth. This is the core truth of all. Hashem Echad. There is nothing but God. And it's not something that we die for, it's something we live for. That's how we live our life. A Jew's life is about bringing the unity of God, permeating every facet of existence, every force, every aspect of existence, permeating it with the awareness that there's nothing but God. By doing a mitzvah, taking your portion of the world, taking a physical object and doing a mitzvah, sanctifying it, making it holy, bringing holiness into the world, bringing godliness into this world, making our lives, our homes, our deeds, our actions, our thought, 
filling our lives, our businesses, our making every part of our life, filling it with holiness, with godliness. This is our fountain of youth. This is our secret. This is the essence of the truth. This is the eternity within the truth, the divine spark within the truth. It's indestructible. And that's the holy spark within each and every Jew. Jew is a Jew is a Jew. That's the core, that's the essence. That's why the Jews are the chosen people. And that's why Israel is the holy land. The Torah is the holy Torah. And God is holy. And we try to bring that holiness into this world. By doing the Torah and doing the mitzvah, studying the Torah and doing the mitzvah. And by teaching the entire world, six billion people, to become righteous Gentiles. By teaching six billion people to become Noahites, living up to their divine potential. Every human being is created in the image of God. By every human being plugging in to Sinai, plugging into the Torah, plugging into the Jewish people, to Moses, by fulfilling their seven Noahide laws, which is their Ten Commandments, with hundreds of details, which are the basic moral, ethical, and spiritual principles for all mankind, then every human being has the ability, without becoming Jewish, every human being has the ability to plug in to this eternal truth, to plug into eternity, to plug in to connect with ultimate reality by fulfilling their holy mission in this world, being a righteous Gentile, leading a moral, ethical life filled with integrity, a life filled with morality, ethics, and spirituality. Kabbalah and the Psychology of the Soul Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky